I come to you. And these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I don't know if you're familiar with the movie The Matrix. Maybe you've seen it, you've probably heard about it, uh, but the, the Matrix is a science fiction movie. And in The Matrix, the real world has been taken over by computers that keep humans in, in slavery or in bondage by creating a false reality in their minds. The computers electronically feed a virtual reality in their brain as they remain entombed in pods where they're being used as an energy source of some sort. Sounds like fun. So there's this main hero, Neo, or New, right? And he's trying to figure this out. He actually senses something's wrong. He runs into a guy named Morpheus in this conversation then takes place, Morpheus asks Neo, do you want to know what it's all about? Neo says, yes. The matrix is everywhere. It's all around us. Even now in this very room, you can see it when you look out your window. When you turn on your TV, you can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is a world that has been pulled over your eyes. To blind you from the truth. Neo then asks, well, what, what is that truth? Well, that you're a slave. You're born into a prison. You're born into bondage. A prison that you cannot smell, taste, or touch. A prison for your mind. He says, unfortunately, no one can be told what the matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. And at that point... He presents Neo with two pills, a red pill and a blue pill. If he takes the blue pill, he forgets everything that happened, and he wakes up in his bed, continuing to be deluded by the false reality around him. If he takes the red pill, though, his eyes are opened, and he sees for himself the lie that he has lived this whole time. So, of course, he takes the red pill, and so begins the movie series, The Matrix. And at the moment that he takes that pill, his eyes are opened. And his relationship to the world that he once knew has changed forever. It will absolutely never, ever be the same, and rightfully so. Throughout Scripture, we see that comparison all the time. We see that parallel. As a matter of fact, we see it uh, most prevalent in the Apostle Paul and his conversion. What happened to Paul? He was blinded for how many couple days, wasn't he? And then his, the scales fall off his eyes, and his eyes are open to a reality and to a truth. 
And because of the relationship that Paul now has with Jesus Christ, his relationship with everybody in this world, with the world itself, has changed drastically and can never be the same, and rightfully so. We see when we believe in Christ that the world is not what we thought it was. And the world will resist those who try to get others to see the truth. The prepositions in this passage are extremely important. In, of, from, out of. And they speak to the new relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. And because of that relationship with Jesus Christ, the relationship that we have with this world. If many of you Uh, Maybe have headers over your Bibles and it says the disciples in the world. That is a perfect uh, header or or title for this passage. Jesus is talking about how you and I live in the world while we are disciples of Jesus Christ. It is a reality that happens automatically when we believe in Jesus Christ. Our eyes are opened. We see a truth and a reality that you and I have not seen before. But it's a reality that needs to be lived out. Jesus is saying throughout this, we, we have to live what we are. We are no longer citizens of this world, first and foremost. We're citizens of heaven. And that priority, that kingdom, and the relationship with Jesus Christ comes first. So we're going to look at three principles as we live in this world, what that looks like, what we can have, what we can expect And then the main thrust that we see that Jesus is pointing out here. The first principle is that you and I can have joy in this world, trusting what he has prayed. Notice what he says in verse 13. But now I come to you in prayer. I'm coming to you, Father. And he's asking these things. He's requesting certain requests for the disciples and for us. And he says, I, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. How many people have ever maybe overheard a kid praying? Or maybe your child has overheard you praying? There's a few instances of this and people have written them down. Uh, A father was listening to his child pray, and the child's all sincere and intense, getting ready to pray, and he starts out, and he says, Dear Harold, and and the father automatically bursts in, he says, Whoa, wait, wait a second, Why, why are you calling God Harold? And he says, Well, you know, that's what they call him in church, our Father who art in heaven, Harold be thy name. Another, another child was, was overheard praying, and he says, He says this, now I lay me down to rest, I hope to pass tomorrow's test. If I die before I wake, well, that's one less test I'll have to take. (laughs) He's got it, right? Yeah, Lord, take me. Won't fail math. Uh, A little boy said, dear God, please take care of my daddy, my mommy, my sister, my brother, and, and my doggy and me. Oh, and please, God, take care of yourself, because if anything happens to you, we're in a big mess. On a a more serious note, uh, a friend recalled that her alcoholic father overheard his wife praying out loud. 
not realizing that he had walked into the door late at night. She pleaded, she said, you've got to help me. I'm going to have to leave my husband because all of our money is being spent on alcohol. The husband, overwhelmed by his wife's prayer, immediately stopped drinking and never touched another drop. It's one thing to know someone is praying for you. It's another thing to hear them praying for you, isn't it? A little different. And I was talking to a few folks after church last week about this very fact, that you and I get to listen in on the heart of Jesus Christ in this prayer. Jesus is not praying for his benefit. He's not praying for God's benefit. Whose benefit is he praying for? Ours, right? Right, right here in this passage. And guess what? It's intentional. N- notice what he says. I come to you and I speak these things. It means not being silent. I'm speaking these things out loud. He wants you to listen in, and he wants you to listen in for a reason, because he wants you to know that the requests that he is making, that he, the requests that he's making are going to be answered, and you, knowing and hearing this, can have joy as you go through this world, hated by it, as you suffer through it, and as you are persecuted, you can have his joy knowing you're kept safe knowing all of these truths that he is praying. He wants you to hear it. You ever, ever, hear, you ever, you ever say, I wish I was a fly on the wall in the, in the conversations with people? You know, oh, I wish I was there. I wish I heard them say that. Well, he is intentionally saying this out loud. He could have said to his disciples, all right, guys, I'm going to go in this room. I'm going to pray for X, Y, and Z, and I just want you to know I'm taking care. And then Do you think the disciples would probably be listening in? I I would. But he doesn't do that. And he actually says, I'm speaking these things out loud. I want you to know this. And again, we see the way that you and I can have joy in this world. We're going to try to find joy in so many other things. But the only way that you can have a permanent joy, a joy that is supernatural, not from ourselves, that can transcend any circumstance that we're in, is the closer we are to Jesus Christ. Is trusting and believing in Him, knowing what He's praying for us, knowing that these things are true, and having His joy, not our own. It's the only way. Because the world is going to try to rob you of joy. And the world is going to try to tell you there are all these other ways of finding joy. Immediate joy. Immediate pleasure. And those ways, I promise you, are only going to leave you empty. And I hope here at Galilee we realize that. Hope each and every, every one, single one of you leave here knowing that Christ offers us a joy that nobody can take away. And it's found in trusting, hearing, and believing in His Word, in His prayer. The more that we're in the world, the deeper that we're in the world and engaging with the world, 
the more joy we need. And the more that we're in the world, the more that we need His Word. This is principle that He's establishing here. The closer you and I are to Jesus Christ, the more joy we're going to have. He has said this throughout. Jesus wants you to listen in. He intentionally prays out loud so we can hear Him. It's recorded so we know it. Knowing what He prays for and believing in what He prays for brings us that joy And his joy comes from what? That communion, obedient communion. The closer you are to Christ, the more joy you're going to have in your life. The more you are in his word, the more joy you're going to have in this world. Listen to the things he asks. Notice the progression. I think this is awesome and just strange the way he set this up. Where does he begin? So here's our request. Verse 11, keep them in your name. Keep them faithful. Keep them faithful to the message. Don't let them fall away. And then that they may be one. And then keep them from the evil one, which we're going to talk about here. Sanctify them in truth. Set them apart. How? In truth, which is your word. That they may be perfected in unity, which he says, so that the world may know you sent me. So our unity because we're kept in the faith, is now a witness to the world. And then where does it end up? That they may see Jesus, that they may be with Jesus in his glory. Guess what? From start to finish, we're covered in prayer. From start to finish, you and I are covered by his prayers. You and I are safe and secure. We're going to be kept in the faith. We're going to be unified because of that. We're going to be kept from the evil one, set apart in this world, witnessing in this world by our unity, and guess what? We're going to, where are we going to end up? With him. Start to finish. That's what he wants you to know. That's what he wants you to hear. He wants us to know the security that we have does not come from anything in this world. The security that we have comes from this, because he tells you. Don't find security in your your pocketbooks. Don't find security in your banks. Don't find security in your relationships. Don't find security anywhere else. The only place we can find that is in Jesus Christ. He wants you to hear that. He wants you to know it. Hearing what he prays brings us joy. Believing what he prays brings us joy. And it also encourages us and gives us an example of what to be praying for. Who's he praying for? He's praying for others, isn't he? And he's praying that their joy may be made full. And we can take from that. And we can say to ourselves, we should be praying those things for others, that your joy may be made full. And if you want an opportunity to listen in on people praying for you, come on a Tuesday night. Because I love when, when I get to go, and, and it's one thing knowing people are praying for you. It's another thing hearing it. And they say your name, and then they say these prayer requests, and you're like, wow, that really encourages me. And we need all the encouragement and joy we're, we, need, we, we can get because guess what? 
in this world, you and I are going to be hated. But despite that hatred, you and I are to keep what we have been given, his word. Listen to where he goes after this. So verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Jesus had talked about this before. He introduces it again. It is an absolute expectation. As soon as you and I become believers in Jesus Christ, guess what? We are put at war with this world. This world, this world is going to not like us. And we cannot expect anything different. And here he's also kind of hinting and warning at the dangers of that. So we've been given something, and because we've received and believed in his word, his truth, we are not no, any longer part of this, this community. We belong to heaven, and therefore we live out that life here in this world. For the most part, does not belong to heaven. And because of that, you and I have an automatic conflict. Those that have received his word have been transformed or transferred to another kingdom. And because of that, the world hates them. And, and, and there's a few things that we, I want, to see bef, bef, want us to see before we really get into this idea of hatred. Number one, there are some reasons even right now I think that the world is hating us and they're good reasons. Our job is not to try to find ways to get the world to hate us. And, and I, I think that has to do with us confusing the kingdoms. We're confusing kingdoms right now. And, and part of this verse we should take out of it is, is the fact that this, this earth, this isn't our home. So we don't defend our home the way people of the world defend their homes. We don't, we don't have an attitude towards others that are considered our enemies the way that other people do. And we don't fight for this kingdom here on earth. Now, please do not hear, that doesn't mean we don't engage in our government, in our society, and try to, try to help, help out people who need help, try to pass some laws. But that is not our primary goal. And what's happening in the church is we're confusing those things and the world has a right response because we're showing them hatred. And it's, it's really, it's getting to a point to where you, you're talking to unbelievers and that is immediately where they're going to. Don't confuse the kingdoms because when we confuse kingdoms, then we're going to confuse the gospel message to people. And people think that we're trying to establish a kingdom here on earth. That's not it. The kingdom that we establish is in the hearts and minds of men and women. That's how change happens. Change happens from the gospel. And, and I pray, and it's one of my biggest goals in this church, that we are always known for standing firm in the truth, yet loving our neighbors as we do it. However, 
even when we try our best, the world still hates us, don't they? That sign. Can you read that guy's sign? If Jesus returns, kill him again. I'm sure many of you know about the the recent uh, terrible shooting at the Christian school in Tennessee. What's even more, or it makes it even worse, is that it seems that people are placing the blame not on the person who did it, but on the victims. This is what one woman said in response to that shooting. I don't condone Audrey Hale's actions, though, though, I understand the out, their outrage against an intolerant state that brainwashes children through religious indoctrination. Really? There's a but? There's a though? How about this one? Very surprising that there would be a mass shooting at a Christian school given that the lack of prayer is often blamed for these horrible events. Is it possible they weren't praying enough or praying correctly despite being a Christian school? This is a comment to Christian writer on their comment section, some of their their comments that go through them. Your obnoxious points of view are exactly why so many people hate. They see what a despicable monster you are, and they want nothing to do with anyone of your ilk. You're every bit the knuckle-dragging monster as the person was writing about. Your version of Christianity is pure sexism, pure obnoxiousness, pure evil. Why are people leaving Christianity in droves? Well, it's because of scum like you. Words don't even begin to express how sick and twisted your point of view is. Your head is firmly buried in the sand. Even God must feel disgust over what you have become. So much for tolerance. I share these things because this is the reaction. This is how the world sometimes feels about us. And we have to be aware of this. The word for hate here is a strong aversion. It's a detest. It's to despise. And typically it's without cause. Jesus is talking again about Christ-likeness. You're... Our relationship with Jesus Christ needs to be lived out in this world. And therefore, the response that we want to have can't be. Our response needs to be His, isn't it? doesn't it? And that's hard. When you have that coming at you, it is absolutely crucial that you and I don't respond in kind. 
Because I'll tell you what, that's one way they're going to see we're different. You cannot respond the way the world expects you to respond. You cannot respond with hatred. You can't respond with insults. You can't respond with vile. You have to respond with grace. You have to respond with love. And you have to respond with the truth. Listen to what he says in Romans 12, 17 through 21. Do not repay anyone what? Evil for evil. Remember when this is written to the, the Roman church, persecution. Don't repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If at all possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace. Make it a goal. Strive to make it peaceful in your relationships with these people. Do not take revenge, but leave room for what? God's wrath. Trust. Trust in God. It's mine to avenge. I will repay. But on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, you what? You feed that man. You feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Because in doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. They are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. Even in our response, you and I reveal the difference And you and I can have joy because we know what's going to happen. Even though we're being hated, we can have joy. Even though we're being hated, we can love, we can bless and not curse. And I'll tell you what, the closer that you and I cling to this message, the more hate we're going to have. Prepare yourselves. The relationship with Jesus Christ dictates an imitation of his life. And the more that you and I imitate his life, the the more you and I are going to be persecuted in this one. We don't fight for this kingdom. We fight for his. Our citizenship in heaven comes first. You and I have been born again from above. And we do not worship the spirit of this age, but we worship the only true God, whom the world hates and rebels against. The world here is a system. It's a system of belief and action that stands against God. It stands against his values. It stands against his order and against all of those that stand with him and to his word and hold on to his word. The world stands in contrast to heaven and the world is actively fighting against it. And we feel that every day, don't we? So, what are our options? We've talked about those before. You can leave the faith, right? You won't have any problems with the world. That's why he prays, keep them in the faith. Keep them in your name. Because this is happening. So, the temptation is to what? I'm done. This isn't worth it. This isn't what I signed up for. Or what else can we do? We can kind of Not maybe let go of the whole message, but what are we going to do? We're just going to tear out a few pages. (laughs) Uh, Jesus never said that about about our sexuality. 
Jesus never said that about our gender. Jesus never said that about marriage. Jesus never said that. So we're going to try to compromise. We're going to tear out pieces of his word. We're going to let go a few of those pieces, and that's going to make it easier on us. No, it's not going to satisfy the world. They want it all. And that's one way that we can lose our witness in this world. He's, he's stating a truth, but it needs to be lived out. This is the main thrust of his passage. You're not, you don't belong to this world. You belong to me. You belong to my kingdom. Therefore, you've got to live that out. And this world's going to hate you. They're going to tell you to let go of this. You can't do it. But you also can't fight back the way that they expect. You just can't do it. We have to imitate him. We have to be transformed by his word. You know, it's really interesting. Pastor Dave mentioned this uh, yesterday when I was at the retreat briefly. And then he, he had said, he's talking about the disciples. And, and he, he talked about the impact that they had on the Roman Empire. And remember, this is during a time of persecution. There was so much persecution going on. They, they, they fled. And what happened to the church? It grew. It grew in leaps and bounds. There wasn't, they didn't have outreach events. Peter's not like, hey, look at me, I'm going to dress up like a clown. And I'm going to hand out things at the, at the, uh, the gladiatorial arena. It's not, he didn't do that. And they didn't have massive megachurches either. They were a scattered community, a persecuted community, but they transformed the entire Roman Empire. Why? Because they were living this out. Because these people saw something different. And when they were persecuted, and when they responded like Polycarp responded, they were like, what is going on here? Who are these people? What is the hope that they have that they're willing to be burned at a stake and be fed to the lions? That's how a culture is transformed. In it, not of it. We have to live out what we are because we have to realize guess what? This world's in transition. We should get this tattooed on our faces. If anyone does that, I'll, I'll give you, I'll pay for it actually. For two reasons. The first reason is we get to wake up every morning and read that verse right there. And that's how you start your day. You start your day looking at that verse, knowing what? This world's going away. I'm going to live forever. And what I do here for the kingdom is going to what? Last forever. Therefore, let's go. Let's go out into this world knowing this. And then it also would be a really good conversation starter. What's your verse mean? Well, I'm going to tell you what, this world's going down. <laughs> and people are going to be like, oh, really? Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I'll tell you exactly. Fire, all this stuff. We should get it tattooed on our hearts, actually, right? And live it out. I don't. I love, I love life. I love thing, and it's and it's a, we enjoy life. We're not to be. We're going to talk about that monastics. We're not to be separate, and we're not to you know you know put on potato sacks and come to church and be like and just be like uh, beating ourselves. And that's not that's not what he's saying. 
but this is in the back of our minds. This is, this is, uh, we understand this. So therefore, we hold on to this world very, very loosely, and we hold on to him very, very tightly. That's, that's going to change our hearts, that's going to change our lives, and that's going to affect the people around us, isn't it? Therefore, we don't love the world, but we love the world as Christ loved the world. We don't compromise with the world. We don't let go of His Word. We hold on to that which we have received. We keep it, and we don't do another thing that He actually prays about here. Third point, third principle, we remain engaged with the world knowing, as we are in the world, knowing that you and I are protected. In verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. How many people remember playing games and calling timeouts? Timeout was a great tool. I love that meme with this kid. He says, ball about to go in the basket, I call a timeout. Whenever we would do that, right? And if the teams were unfair and things weren't going our way, because I was ultra competitive, still am, hated losing, right? So things not going well. What timeout? Timeout? Time what do you mean timeout? Not to score a touchdown. Timeout? Well, I just yeah. And you start mumbling something. And you guys are timeout. Yeah, yeah. I need a break. I, this isn't fair. Right? How many you say that? It's not fair. This isn't fair. You guys always get this side of the field. The grass is growing in your direction. You can run with the grass. You know, but what's funny is we're starting to call timeouts in life, aren't we? They're called safe spaces. Even people here are safe spaces. Yeah. Look them up. Safe spaces popping up all over the place, uh, especially on college campuses. And, and I want to preface this before I destroy safe spaces. I want to say that if, if you're an unbeliever and you're, you're watching this or listening to this, I, the, the goal for people is to feel safe. I, I agree with that, absolutely. We should not feel physically threatened at any point, and Christians should not make people ever feel that way, ever, 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 ever. However, however, we have to identify or come to a a real definition of what threatening and physical violence and all of those things mean, because now we're saying that words are violent, um, just me saying the truth to people is violent. That is not reality. People are calling timeouts in life. It says 36% of students want a campus, or students with impressionable minds, want campuses free of words Subjects and ideas that might give offense or cause discomfort, not life. It's not reality. And I remember after leaving the military, they started introducing something called stress chits. So the, ki- the guys could, could actually raise a chit, this little piece of paper or something, if they're getting yelled by the drill instructor and they don't feel safe or they feel like they're going to break down. No, sorry, stop. I need a little break right now. Stop yelling. Okay, Bobby, you go ahead. You let me know how that works on the battlefield. Can you stop shooting, please? I'm a stress chit. Signed by the president. That's crazy. 
That's not life. It's crazy in the culture, but guess what? Our churches can become safe spaces, can't they? The Christian bubble. What's Jesus saying? You've got to remain engaged, folks. Because this is the other temptation. This is the temptation. The hatred comes. People aren't believing. We're being persecuted. Things are going crazy. The world is full of evil. I'm just going to go into my little bubble. John Stott calls it the rabbit hole Christianity. We kind of hop out, right? We just go around our day and you meet your Christian friends for coffee. You go to church, you know, and you hang out with your Christian friends. You go to a Bible study Wednesday night. You know, when you go to your Christian job, you know, you only hang out in your Christian cubicle, right? And then you go back home, you're like, what a witness. That is great. Whew. My world is tough. We cannot do that. He actually, we're going against what he's praying for. You have to remain engaged. You got it. You have to get dirty. He says, don't take them out of the world. Don't create your Christian bubbles, folks. It's one of my biggest prayers for us at Galilee that you and I are absolutely intentionally forming relationships with people who are unbelievers. Pray, we are all doing that. Because that's our calling. God is our safe space in this world. We are called to engage. As a matter of fact, Jesus, he's going to say it again, the prepositions. I sent them into the world. I sent them right, right into the heart of the lion's den. To be my witnesses and to live out this truth where they see that you're living in the world, you're engaging with them, you're respecting them, you're loving them, but you're not compromising. And they're like, what's the matter with you? What's, where's the difference? What is it about you? And you preach the truth. That's the only way. We're not, we're not going to save people from these, these, these seats right here. It's not going to happen. And we're not saving anyone. He's the one working through us. But we got to go. We got to go. We have to remain engaged. And ask yourselves this question. What are you doing that, lives this, that shows that you live this out? What are you doing? Are you making friends with your neighbors? Are you avoiding unbelievers? Are you praying for them specifically? Are you praying for opportunities to become friends with unbelievers? This is all part, all part of being in this relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul says it, in Corinthians, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Guess what? I didn't mean the immoral people of this world, the covetous, the swindlers, the idolaters. For that, you would have to what? Go out of the world. He's picking up on that. 
He says, I'm talking about the church. The, the funny thing is, is what happens, it's the reversal. We do it all the time. We start to judge the world and we forget to judge ourselves first. Paul's like, that's not it. You need to take care of your house first. Don't worry about the world. You leave that up to God. You need to engage the world, understand they're blinded, understand they're unbelievers, have mercy and grace, and preach the gospel. You take care of this home. But that's what we do. We retreat, and then we, we pat ourselves on the back. We think we're so much more righteous than this world, and we look at the world, and we shoot rockets from our little protected porches. That's not engagement. That's not the gospel. That's not our mission. It's not what Jesus Christ did. We're in the world as long as the world is not in us. He sends us right into the heart of the lion's den. There are two keepings that are here. We're kept in the world. And what's the second one? While we're in the world, while we're in Satan's domain, you and I are absolutely protected. Keep them from the evil one. Don't take them out. I put them in, but keep them while they're in the world. There is no better life illustration of this than Daniel. And, and, and Daniel parallels Christians in the world so much that those first few chapters of Daniel are so important for us understanding how we live in this world. Babylon is it's now used in, in the Bible as the what? Representation of everything evil. Babylon was pagan. And Daniel was in it, lived in the heart of it. And if you want a great life example, besides that of Jesus Christ, of course, he's the first and foremost, go to Daniel. The way that he worked in that world was absolutely amazing, and he had a wonderful witness. Notice, Daniel, Daniel actually compromises on some things, not in a bad way. They changed his name, and he didn't put up a stink about it. He didn't say anything. And then when they were going to offer him a different diet, what did he do? Did he make signs, protests, and start banging his can against the, no, we will not eat this, we will not eat this. Is that what he did? No, what does he do? It's so, I love it. He, he, he actually talks to the guy. <laughs> he has a conversation, and he actually he, he persuades him by making it a benefit to the guy, the guard, right? Because the guard had to take care of the prisoners, and if the guard didn't take care of the prisoners, if they looked bad, then he looks bad. Daniel says, hey, let's try this out. I'm going to tell you what, we're going to look better than everyone here, and you're going to get the credit for it. And it works, doesn't it? Wow. He persuades him. And then, when, and then Daniel becomes so popular and so loved by the kingdom, Darius, right? Puts, he's like his right-hand man. And he's upset when he has to do what? Throw him in the lion's den. But in the heart of lion's den, what happens? No one's touching Daniel. What, what imagery? What imagery? It doesn't mean you and I are not going to suffer. It doesn't mean we're not going to be persecuted. But what it means is that Satan cannot touch you. You are ultimately protected by God. He may destroy the body, but guess what? He ain't touching your soul. 
This keeping is a permanent keeping. It's an absolute keeping. And until God is done with you here on earth, nobody's touching you. He may allow things to happen. He may cause things to happen in your life. But ultimately, we are guarded by him until the end. That's the truth he wants you to see. That's what he wants you to know. So therefore, go ahead. Take that outside. Live that out. Who or what are we to fear? Because just like in the fire with his three friends, someone's always there with us. And until it's time, you're protected. He's prayed for us and he wants us to know this will be fulfilled. Nothing falls out of his sovereign control. You and I have a permanent bodyguard. And what we do go through, we, we never go through alone. We never go through alone. One of the other ways that Satan can kind of overcome is through temptation. And this is also something that we have to be aware of. That Satan's going to compromise our witness through what? Sin. So in this prayer, we have to keep that in mind that we are to be continually praying that we are kept from that temptation. But we are absolutely His. We may be in Satan's home, but we have one Lord over us. And combined with everything else that Jesus is saying, we might be tempted, we might be tried, we might even fail at times. But no matter what, our soul is safe with him. Satan may kill this body. But you and I belong to this, belong to the Lord. And because we belong to Him, we don't belong to this world. And that relationship that we have is already a fact that needs to be lived out. Two young women went to college. Their parents were so excited for them. They were both, they, the parents were hoping for both of them to have a, a, a bright future with respectful careers, get established, have security, purpose, get their master's degree, and then move on out into the world. Something happened to those two girls. You know what happened? They became Christians. So their, their parents' plans for them, guess what? Bye-bye. They both wanted to become missionaries. Forget the career. Forget the stability. Forget the security. So the parents, the parents were livid. They threw a fit and they called 
one of the professors who they believed was the Christian influence in their life. And she basically called and she blamed him for the girls becoming, quote, religious fanatics. And rather than pursuing the course that they had laid out for them, that they had hoped for, they were now going wildly off into the blue. The mother said, we wanted our daughter to get a master's degree, start a career, get something in the bank, so she could have some security. What happened? They took the pill. I guess bad comparison, but... Folks, absolutely everything changes. Listen to how Jesus finishes it up. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Our bond with Jesus Christ shapes, dictates, sets our relationship with this world. It affects everything. Like these parents... We don't follow the course of this world. We don't find our security in this world. We don't find it in our money. We don't find it in our jobs. We don't find it in any other relationship besides this one. And even though the world is going to hate us, we continue to engage with this world knowing we are protected. Knowing that no matter what happens, we belong to Him. And because we belong to Him, we're no longer part of this world. Father, Lord, help us to live out this reality as this world tends to try to take our hearts and minds every day. Lord, I pray that our witness can be like Christ's, that we can stay the course, that we can remain faithful to your word, faithful to your truth, that we can stay unified with each other, that we can resist temptation and fulfill the purpose that you have for us here on earth. And that we do this not for our glory, but for yours alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.